Hey, my name is Lee Kwan Jovu, and over the past couple of months, I've been doing some research on the permitting of Enbridge's Line 3 replacement project in Minnesota, USA. The Line 3 replacement project is a tar sands oil pipeline being built to replace a 60-year-old degrading oil pipeline in northern Minnesota. In essence, the replacement project is a larger, brand new version of the old Line 3. In the first two episodes, we discuss some background and current information on Line 3 and the permitting process. In this episode, we'll hear from Dr. Christy Dolph about her experience within the Line 3 permitting process. This is Permission to Pollute. So my name is Christy Dolph, and I am a research scientist um, in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Behavior at the University of Minnesota. Um, and I study stream, river, and wetland ecology. Um, let me see. So I got involved in line three um, back in 2017, um, which was, you know, after Standing Rock happened and the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, and so I had been sort of oriented around that struggle, um, like so many people. Uh, and line three, um, I first got involved during uh, the, the public hearings that were um, being held by an administrative law judge on behalf of the Public Utilities Commission. Um, and that the purpose of those hearings was to take public input on, um, on this project on like the certificate of need and the environmental impact statement. Um, and it, this project intersects pretty heavily with my research, which is about, you know, how um, land use by humans and how climate changes influence the health of stream and river ecosystems. Um, and so I felt compelled as a scientist to go and and just testify, you know, as part of the public to the law judge um, about what I saw as the impacts of this project on um, stream and river health. And so that was in 2017. That was probably the first sort of um, personal action that I took uh, around line three. One of my favorite questions to ask people is how they feel their role has changed and adapted through the permitting process. As a developing scientist, I was pretty interested to hear what Dr. Dolph had to say. Um, probably the, the biggest change is that I, I kind of went in as an individual scientist, just wanting to speak to um, my individual expertise on the project, which was kind of a new thing for me because I had previously, you know, pretty much kept my, my research um, separate from, uh, you know, political actions that I would do or, or, you know, activism or things like that. Um, but the biggest change since then, I think, is that I have, I have become part of a movement around line three. So rather than operating as an individual scientist, I'm working with a whole network of folks, um, including other scientists, um, and health professionals, but, also, you know, indigenous water protectors um, and tribes and nonprofit groups and many, many other people involved in grassroots struggle. I guess I see myself more 
as um, part of that organizing landscape rather than somebody operating on an, on an individual basis. Scientific studies seem to play a central role throughout the permitting process. There were numerous modeling studies, ecological calculations of impact on wetlands, references to past and future data about potential pipeline spills. I mean, the list goes on. And I suppose it makes sense. I'd be pretty worried if there wasn't a lot of science going into the studies. But it did get me interested into how the science is actually being implemented and what type of science is being used to start off with. Yeah, well, I guess two things. I mean, I think one thing is a lot, you know, the the people who have been pi- fighting this pipeline the, the longest and the hardest, um, especially including, you know, indigenous communities, indigenous leaders, water protectors, they have a very, you know, <laughs> like comprehensive understanding of the impacts of this project. Um, and having, you know, basically being descended from people who have stewarded that land and these waters for really millennia, uh, they know everything that's wrong with this project and everything that's at stake um, in terms of protecting their way of life, but also protecting land and water for other people and protecting the climate. Um, And so I think one of the important aspects for me is that I don't sort of like privilege my scientific understanding above the the ecological understanding of the people that actually like live and depend on the land and water. Um, But I think what I can say is that what I do know from science and from my training absolutely supports what folks are saying about, you know, the devastating impacts of this project and why we can't afford to be building tar sands infrastructure through, you know, (laughs) some of the highest quality resources in the state. Um, We can't afford to be doing that as really as a society. So I think what I've tried to do is use my position as a scientist to sort of leverage my leverage my privilege or my access to institutions to really confirm what people who have been fighting this project for a long time already know, um, which is that it's really incompatible with with environmental justice, with climate justice, um, with treaty law, uh, with water quality protection. And I guess the other thing I was gonna say, just something that's really helped me engage in this struggle is I became part of a group called Science for the People Um, and actually with several other people started a chapter of of Science for the People here in the Twin Cities. And that group really has an analysis um, that says, you know, science, like any other type of endeavor, um, science is also uh, very much governed by systems of, of oppression or, you know, the political landscape. So we really need to, you know, science is not somehow apart from all of these questions around justice um, and power. And so um, for me, you know, I really orient around the question of, of who is science for? And to me, science is it should be a tool that's used for human and, and planetary well-being um, and not a tool that's used, you know, for corporate profit above um, our overall well-being and ability to live on this earth. And, and that also means that I think there's a role for scientists to engage in political struggle. 
um, because to just totally stay out of the fight is to, is to kind of inadvertently support the more powerful side. It's very helpful for me to think about um, the idea that neutrality aids the oppressor. So when you have a side that holds more power, if you stay out of the fight, you're basically saying, you're agreeing like, okay, well, I'll just let that more powerful side stand. Um, but I think uh, as a scientist, we actually have a role in grassroots struggle to, to, to side with the people um, around technologies and ways of life that are um, beneficial <laughs> to human health, to environmental protection, to stewardship over, over long, the long term. To me, science has always been presented as something that's set in stone, always factual and non-political. But as Dr. Dolph was saying, science is political. Like the law, science can be used to advance an individual or an industry's personal agenda. For example, if you remember in the permitting process, only specific comments were seen as useful to the state agencies thus diminishing input from people that aren't able to type detailed studies with a host of scientific jargon. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the ways in which Western science is, is privileged is probably just in terms of access. So I would say about a year or, or so ago, a year and a half, um, might even be two years now that we were all the way um, it's coming out of winter. We, we did meet with MPCA staff who were reviewing the permit. And I think one of the reasons why this permitting process is so frustrating to people is that it's so inaccessible um, in terms of even just the language that's used or, you know, the different MPCA has a lot of very specific policies that apply to water quality assessment that they're, you know, they're very like technical and a lot of people just don't know they, you know, don't know about these policies, don't know they exist. And so I think being able, I have worked in the past with MPCA biologists and worked on some of their water quality assessment approaches. And so I'm, I'm familiar with that language. You know, it's all, it's like a ton of jargon. It's a ton of like, sort of technical tools that the agency uses. Um, and so just even being able to speak to what those tools and those policies are is, is something that, you know, gives me sort of more access in a way, I guess, to, to their process. Um, because to other people, I feel like to people who haven't worked at MPCA or haven't worked with them, it's almost like completely unintelligible what they're doing. Um, so, I think you know. I was glad to be able to bring my background um, to bear. I think, and this is maybe a question for down the road. I, I have a lot of frustration because I feel like MPCA isn't adhering to their own standards, or e even all these technical, you know, technical approaches they've developed. In my view, with these permits, they're not adhering to those. So, like on the one hand, it, it's a way that my training privileges me to engage with them, but. <laughs> On the other hand, they didn't listen to me, you know, <laughs> so to the extent that they, they didn't listen to, any, in my opinion, any of the folks that were trying to talk to them about what 
people felt needed to happen. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, I had all that much more um, <laughs> access, like uh, influence over the process. I began to realize that the inaccessibility of the science was part of that blurry disconnect in the permitting process. When I was interviewing Professor Jim Doyle, he made an example and basically said, you wouldn't build 50 coal plants in the boundary waters, now would you? Well, that's basically what this project is. And so, in a similar vein, Dr. Dole feels this project is just as bizarre. They are building it across some of the most sensitive, high-quality resources of the state. Um, I do a lot of work in the parts of the state, so like southern Minnesota, where uh, water quality is heavily impacted by human land use. Most of the wetlands have been removed from the landscape. Uh, most of the water you know, does not meet the standards of the Clean Water Act in the southern half of Minnesota. Uh, and so here we are, we have you know, our remaining intact resources, which are very important to our future in terms of like climate mitigation. And you know, we're talking like carbon storage in these wetlands. Uh, it's the headwaters of the Mississippi River basically resources that can't be replaced in a world where intact freshwater resources are dwindling and we're deciding to build, you know, a tar sands pipeline um, that has a carbon footprint equivalent to 50 coal plants. Um, so none of it, none of it makes sense in terms of like <laughs> this being a, a project compatible with an environmental future we want to see. And I think there were many points at which NPCA could have made a decision that was in line with their mission to protect the environment and they chose not to. Um, and I, I think it was really, it was really choices by upper level managers, by Commissioner Bishop, who leads the agency, all along the road that, that led to this decision and they could have made different choices. Um, and clearly based on the science, I think they, they had all of the science and the legal framework they needed to um, to deny this project, and um, they chose not to do it. The MPCA's counter-argument is often that their hands were tied by the law, and that they did the best that they could under the circumstances they were given. Dr. Dole seems to feel a little more that it was a fear-based response, leading to everybody bouncing around responsibility from one agency to the next. So they really didn't use the, the full extent of the legal framework that they have at their disposal, where they could have weighted more heavily, you know, treaty rights, environmental impacts to indigenous communities, climate impacts, broader scale land and water degradation that will arise from the project. So, it, you know, I, my personal view is that this is a political decision that MPCA leaders you know, along with the governor, um, it's a political decision they're making. And they want to say that their hands are tied or that it's another agency's responsibility. But having engaged in this process, I've heard that so much that like, oh no, that's not our responsibility. That's somebody else's responsibility. It's really a hot potato of like no one wanting to stick their neck out or maybe incur, you know, political costs of doing the right thing. Ultimately, 
something has to be wrong with the system where a regulatory body can't carry out its responsibility. We've spoken about regulatory capture quite a bit, so how does one fix it? Well, as you might expect, there's no easy answer. In general, the agency does need to break with the past because they ha- they don't have a history of, of denying pro- projects, regardless of how harmful those projects might be. Um, and when we're talking about escal- escalating crises of, you know, climate chaos and species mass extinction and dwindling freshwater resources and all these other things, like, yeah, we do, we do need a different approach and we need to start that um, somewhere. Because right now I feel like this system operates on behalf of um, sort of corporate polluters and not on behalf of the people the agencies are supposed to serve. And I, you know, I think it's a lot about money. (laughs) So it's a lot about the profit that's at stake. I mean, I guess it even goes beyond regulation because we need different (laughs) economic systems where we're not like everybody's not just at the mercy of, you know, corporate power brokers whose whole business model is based around extraction and exploitation. I don't know. It's almost like there's so much that needs to be changed. Thank you once again for listening to this episode of Permission to Pollute. My name is Lee Kwan Jovu. I'm currently a geology and geography double major at McAllister College who's just trying to learn more about myself and figure out how I can realize the change that I'd like to see in the world. This podcast and music were created and edited by me with guidance from my advisor, Professor Dan Trudeau. That's it for this episode. We'll be back with another one. Thank you.